Uh, let's uh, do turn our attention to this passage of Scripture from Genesis that is the next in line as we work our way through this uh, sermon series. Genesis chapter 30, verses 25 through 43. If you would give your attention to the reading of God's Word. As soon as Rachel had born Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, send me away that I may go to my own home and country. Give me my wives and my children for whom I have served you that I may go for you know the service that I've given you. But Laban said to him, if I have found favor in your sight, I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. Name your wages and I will give it. Jacob said to him, you yourself know how I have served you and how your livestock has fared with me. For you had little before I came and it has increased abundantly and the Lord has blessed you wherever I turned. But now when shall I provide for my own household also? He said, what shall I give you? Jacob said, you shall not give me anything if you will do this for me. I will again pasture your flock and keep it. Let me pass through all your flock today, removing from it every speckled and spotted sheep and every black lamb and the spotted and speckled among the goats, and they shall be my wages. So my honesty will answer for me later when you come to look into my wages with you. Everyone that is not speckled and spotted among the goats and black among the lambs, if found with me, shall be counted stolen." Laban said, good, let it be as you have said. But that day Laban removed the male goats that were striped and spotted and all the female goats that were speckled and spotted, every one that had white on it and every lamb that was black and put them in charge of his sons. And he sent them a distance of three days journey between himself and Jacob. And Jacob pastured the rest of Laban's flock. Then Jacob took fresh sticks of poplar and almond and plane trees and peeled white streaks in them, exposing the white of the sticks. He set the sticks that had been peeled in front of the flocks in the troughs, that is the watering places, where the flocks came to drink. And since they bred when they came to drink, the flocks bred in front of the sticks. And so the flocks brought forth striped, speckled and spotted and Jacob separated the lambs and set the faces of the flocks toward the striped and all of the black in the flock of Laban. He put his own droves apart and did not put them with Laban's flock. Whenever the stronger of the flock were breeding, Jacob would lay the sticks in the troughs before the eyes of the flock that they might breed among the sticks. But for the feebler of the flock, he would not lay them there. So the feebler would be Laban's and the stronger Jacob's. Thus the man increased greatly and had large flocks, female servants and male servants and camels and donkeys. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Father, we gather ourselves before you, the one who is true, the one who has spoken, and the one who is lovely. 
And so we would ask you by your spirit to open our eyes to see that which is true, that which you have spoken, and the one who is lovely, Jesus Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, if you're joining us, uh, you know that we're in a story about a dysfunctional family. That was what you heard. I was not here, but I've listened, and you heard about a, a dysfunctional family last week, and the, and the drama around that family continues, and we see more of it today. What we see is the fact that in the midst of this story that unfolds, we find someone like us. We find someone like us who who as we gather ourselves here today, we come flawed, or as I said earlier, somewhere between faithless and faithful. That's what we find in this man, Jacob. His was a, a blended faith, creatively deceptive on one hand and clinging to God with the other. And maybe that's you today, either clinging to God with one hand and creatively, maybe even deceptive on the other. You know, we fool ourselves. We're pretty good at fooling ourselves, deceiving ourselves, even at times. And, and, and in the story, we, we, we come alongside Jacob, who's, who's got this blended faith. And what we find is God is at work. That God works. He's committed himself to a character whose faith is tenacious but flawed. What, he, what I'm saying to us is he's committed himself to people like that, which is what I need to hear today. And I'm guessing you may as well. What we're going to find in this passage is that the promises of God are not held captive to the faithful obedience of God's people. The promises of God are pledged and brought to fruition through his faithfulness to his promises to his people. Here's what I want you to see as we look at this passage. I want you to see the flaws of God's people. That's going to be on the surface. You won't miss that. But I want you to see the flaws of God's people, the mystery of God's ways, and then finally, the fruit of God's labor. I think that's what this passage is showing us, the flaws of God's people. Jacob in particular, the characters in this particular narrative are Jacob and his father-in-law, Laban, who we've been looking at for a bit now and will continue beyond today. Here's the context. You will remember Jacob has fulfilled his 14 year, 14 year marriage contract. Um, we don't use marriage contracts today. That's probably a good thing. Uh, we don't have bride prices where you, where you negotiate with the father-in-law what the bride price will be, but that was the story there, and there's something from that story that, that is helpful for us to, to note. You see, the bridegroom, the bridegroom would travel from his father's house 
to the home of the bride and there would negotiate with the father of the young woman to determine the price that must be paid to purchase the bride. Aren't you glad we don't do that? 20 years he now has spent, 14 years working for his father-in-law, for, for what he thought was Rachel that turned out to be Leah and now Rachel, and those 14 years have passed, and now he is spending six years working in the flocks for the, what, will, what will be what he leaves with. So 20 years of the total. And now, if you were here last week, and if you weren't, just go back and look at the previous chapter where you see these sons of Jacob that are born to Leah and Rachel. But finally, with the birth of a child to Rachel, which is where the story left off last week, all of Jacob's yearnings for home were reawakened. You ever want to just go home? For some of you, this is home. For some of you, home is somewhere else or was somewhere else. And there is something about a longing for home. We're glad you're here, by the way. But, but there is something about home that never alters. Jacob wants to go to what he calls my country. In the last chapter, we heard, <clears throat> we heard that the wives were able to, chose to recognize that with the birth of children, now my husband is bound to be by, my, by this child. Remember that? Now my husband is bound to me by this child. Jacob now feels free to leave because Rachel is now bound to him by child. Previous to this, had he left with Rachel, it's not unthinkable that she would, without child, as, as his wife, companion, traveling companion, could have returned to her father. Now Laban doesn't strike us as the kind of father necessarily that we might want to return to. But, but now Jacob understands that with, with child born, Rachel and Jacob are now bound to one another in a way that they had not been before. The deal was sealed if it was ever unsealed. And now he's, he's bound in his own mind and heart to return home. There's just one obstacle. Laban. <laughs> Laban and Jacob have had this, let's say, complicated relationship for 20 years now, a relationship that's been featured by manipulation and half-truths and, and a lack of honest, straightforward communication. You know when you look someone in the eye and they're looking you in the eye and they say something to you, there's everything in you wants to believe that. I mean, they're looking me right in the eye, eye to eye. And when, when those words are exchanged, there's everything in us, in every culture, wants to believe that and say, I've heard it. I've seen it. I saw the expression on his or her faith, and I'm going to trust that word. Jacob and Laban have learned you can't do that with one another. 
And we're going to see more of it here. What, would have you, what have we learned about Jacob? We've learned that there is something flawed in his character. That he is a deceiver. He remains a deceiver. He just can't get away from it. It's his default. He's, he's wrapped around this inclination to, to shade the truth or fudge the facts, but to state things in such a way that, that he comes out on top. And it's going to happen again. Jacob's, we might say, is a blended faith, creatively deceptive, but clinging to God. On the surface of his request, when he, he goes to his father-in-law and says, I'm ready to leave and I need to leave, just name your wages. Laban's response is, you've paid your due. And what Jacob then says, but what about my family? I want something for my family as well. And so then they begin this bartering, manipulative dialogue with one another. It's a contest between two schemers, like two poker players. Two poker players who know what they have in their hand and they think they know what you have in yours. But along the way, as the dialogue unfolds, it's not hard to tell that both of them are bluffing. They're both bluffing. They're, they're responding in kindness to one another. It's a very casual, uh, not casual, it's a very understandable conversation that they've had with reasonable, a reasonable conversation. Jacob's demands are not unreasonable to say something for my family. And Laban's response is, of course, all the while knowing that there will be no going away gift. Though he's agreed to it, there will be no going away gift from Laban. It's, uh, it's too, too on, it's on the surface where we see these two who are both flawed, but for our purposes today, what I want us to think and ponder is <clears throat> that the flawed character of someone like Jacob, from whom we trace our roots, spiritually speaking, is a man of deception, of manipulation, of half-truths. And we're related. We're related to him not only in a spiritual family tree, but we manifest that ourselves. There's deception, there's half-truths, there's flaws that the Bible calls sins that cling to us. And the reality is they not only cling to us, we cling to them. This blended faith of Jacob, I recognize clinging to God with one hand and frankly clinging to sin with the other. A blended faith. But it's the flawed people of God that he comes to. So take heart, friends. He comes to you. There's, 
there is the flaw, there are the flaws of God's people to ponder, but there's also the mystery of God's ways. And now we step into this, frankly, puzzling, head-scratching drama that unfolds before us. As soon as the promise is made, Jacob, Laban, right away begins to remove from the flock the very ones that would potentially benefit Jacob. But Jacob has a plan as well. Laban's plan I understand. Jacob's plan, Jacob's method, I'm still scratching my head over this one. And if you find an explanation to what falls in these verses, uh, let me know. <laughs> There's a drama where Jacob chooses to strip the bark from three different types of trees, the poplar, the almond, and the plane tree, which is like our North American sycamore tree. He's, what he's done is he's whittled away. He's gotten his little knife out or big knife, and he's stripped the bark, and he's, he's, he's chosen the particular times that he's going to place those stripped bark pieces of tree in front of the flocks as they come to the watering trough to feed and to mate, which is what animals do. But he chooses to place the twigs in the water. He discovers that by doing so, in front of the goats as they mate, it leads them to give birth to spotted offspring which under the agreement would be his. That's the part I can't explain. But neither can I explain the fact that putting a black goat in front of white sheep when they may produces dark colored lambs, which again belong to Jacob. Uh, the theories are wide and they are in, 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 not convincing. <laughs> There's an old belief that sensory perception at the moment of conception impacts the embryo. But when I hear that, it sounds like folklore. I'm not sure what it is. That sensory perception at the moment of conception impacts the embryo. I would put that in the category of folklore. You might have a better category than that. But there are some people that think that what we're seeing and reading about here is Jacob actually using sound practices of animal breeding Taking, advanced, taking into account recessive traits and where they show up. And some of you may be able to explain that to me. But regardless, regardless of the mechanics involved in this, there is a specific result that is achieved. Because of his selectivity and because he used this and reserved this method for the strongest and the healthiest of the animals in the flock, Jacob ensured that the spotted kids and black lambs were healthier than the black kids and the white lambs. And if you've gotten lost in that little formula, Jacob is operating for his own interests. That's what's going on here. And it worked. 
The result was his flock of multicolored sheep and goats was not only more numerous, but more vigorous than Laban's flock of white sheep and, and black goats. By manipulating the breeding activity, Jacob succeeds in creating for himself a large, healthy flock of animals. Well, that's on the surface of the drama. That's what we, there's what we see in this chapter. But there's something else going on. There's something else at work. And later on today and next week, I think we will be in this verse and you'll see it. But what Jacob is doing looks like he's simply outwitting Laban at his own game. But, but the results do not come from Jacob's capacity to outthink his father-in-law. The plan originates in the mind of God. In chapter 31, we're going to learn that Jacob does not tell Laban what he will later tell his wives, that he was acting in response to a dream, a dream that God had just given him whereby he would plunder Laban. Now, just for a moment, if God is the source of this plan, this, this plan to deceive, this plan to manipulate, this plan which we could even call a scam. If God is the source of a manipulative scam to outwit Laban, does that trouble you? Does it, does it trouble you that, that God would be the author of that kind of scam? I think it's supposed to. I think sometimes there are all kinds of issues, and this is just one, but there are all kinds of things, and a lot of them happen to be in the Old Testament that cause us to scratch our head over over. God and his purposes in this world. Like the defeat uh, and, and the slaughter of, of nations. Does that make you scratch your head? It's supposed to. It's supposed to scratch our head because we have a God in a box. We have a tendency to put God in, in a box that we can understand and 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 are familiar with and comfortable with, but God is always making us uncomfortable. And there's a reason for it. Because while perhaps scratching our head, we are also to bow our knees. We're to bow before the one who made this world, who is always at work in this world whose ways are mysterious and not always explicable, whose hand is sometimes hidden, like here, as Jacob grows in his wealth, it's, it's becoming more and more obvious that God is the one who is at work in Jacob's work, underneath the work, behind the work, and through the work to accomplish his purposes. So we see the, 
the flaws of God's people, the mysteries of God's ways, but what we're ultimately to see is the fruit of God's labor. Jacob does leave this area 20 years later with what we might call wealth. Extremely prosperous, exceedingly so. In fact, you can make a good airtight case, I think, that having arrived in this land with little, he now has abundant possessions resembling those of his grandfather, Abraham. You remember Abraham and all his wealth. Wealth, as it's listed out and described, it's, it runs off the pages of our, of our Bible. That Abraham was a wealthy man, not merely with um, goods and material things, but in every possible way. And Jacob's wealth now rivals his grandfather's. He came with little, and he had asked for little. The promise or the, the request that Jacob had made of God was this. This is from chapter 28. Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go, meaning to go find a wife, to go to, go to Laban and find a wife, if he will simply give me bread to eat and clothing to wear. God heard that and said, Jacob, I've got more for you than that. I've got more for you than bread to eat and clothing to wear. I have riches that you do not know. Riches that you do not know to ask for. And I will show you myself in the way I care for you and provide for you because my labor is fruitful. And you're going to get a taste, Jacob. Jacob got a taste. The people of Israel got a taste. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, we will one day, as we get to it, read, The Lord your God will make you abundantly prosperous in all the work of your hand, in the fruit of your womb, and in the fruit of your cattle, and the fruit of your ground. That's a promise that he was making to his people. Fruitfulness, prosperity, abundantly prosperous. For the Lord will again take delight in prospering you as he took delight in your fathers. The father who creates this people and gives them his name is eager to <clears throat> delight in prospering his people. Well, we hear that, don't we? I mean, you don't have to find too many radio stations or TV stations to be reminded that God wants to make you wealthy. What is most often mistaken about what we most often hear along these lines is that when God promises a prosper to be to be a prosperous giving God that he's talking ultimately and principally about the world to come that has broken into this one. He, will, he knows your needs, children. He knows you have needs. And like the birds of the air, he will clothe you. He will feed you. But he has more in mind. And the more that he has in mind comes into full view the further we go in the story, 
with each chapter of the story, we see more and more of the fullness. And at some point in your spiritual life, you begin to understand and realize that the greatest need I have is not a new car. It's not a new home. It's not to get rid of the shabby clothes. The greatest need I have is for something that is more eternal, more lasting, more personal, that comes from the hand of a God who is exceedingly eager and delights in making you rich in Christ. The riches of Christ are yours by faith. That all that Christ has. You see, it's not simply a new car. It's the world. You become co-heirs with Christ. (laughs) Joint heirs with Christ. His agents in this world and in the world to come. And we don't step into this story because of the rewards that follow and the prosperity attached. We come into this world, into the story of the world, a rescue because of our deep spiritual poverty. A poverty that, that leaves us longing and thirsty. And what God in his graciousness does is he offers us the fruit of his labor. Jacob could have ped and probably did count or ped or at least admire the herds as they walk past. And at some point you could imagine as far ahead as he could see or as far back as he looked, all he saw were, were flocks and herds that were his. But those pale in comparison. That picture, as grand as it might have been to him, anticipates a greater blessing that will come through Jesus Christ. So what is God's labor? What is the fruit God's labor is designed to produce? It's just what he promised to do. It's what he promised Abraham. It's what he promises you. It's a promise that was foretold through the life and the story of Abraham and now Jacob. In the people of Israel, Moses later on will sing of this great promise. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonder? Your labor, Lord, is wondrous and glorious and awesome. And Moses will sing of the enemies of the people of God and say, terror and dread fall upon them. Because of the greatness of your arm, they are still as stone till your people pass by. Till people pass by whom you have purchased. That's the story that you stepped into by faith. You've stepped into the reality that God has purchased a people for himself. You remember the bride price deal where... where, where the groom would leave his home and go to the home of the bride-to-be and negotiate the terms. And as Jacob negotiated with Laban, Jesus has purchased you as his bride. 
That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6 and 7. He says it twice. You were bought with a price. You were bought with a price. And you are the bride. You are the bride of Christ, bought with a price. And Paul says in Galatians 3, Christ redeemed us or purchased us so that, the, so that in Christ Jesus, get this, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Jesus, the one who said, I, have, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Think prosperity there. Richness, fullness, depth, fruitfulness. I have come that they might have life and have it abundantly. And when that reality dawns on us, when it dawns on you, when the Spirit of God opens your eyes to see that this reality of Redeemer's work in the world was to gather a people who would be his own, that you, that we together, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, are what Peter calls, citing Deuteronomy, God's treasured possession. What do you think the exchange was between Jacob and Rachel as they made their way? We haven't got to that part of the story yet. But as they looked at one another, the herds all around, they've looked at each other, they have a past now behind them and they're stepping toward the future they, that God has laid in front of them. What do you think, what do you suppose the, the glance was when their eyes met? No deception, no manipulation, but the anticipated joy of what awaits, of what was ahead. At that point of the story, they will have known that, that God is the one who has written their story and that, that, that God's promises lie in front of them to take hold of. Well, do you know your own flaws? I mean, we're talking about the flaws of God's people, and we all have them. The Bible calls them sin. What are those things, those sins that we cling to in one hand while clinging to God with the other? God uses people like us. And the reason he does, and the reason this story is a good story, is that the sin that we cling to is now, in the words of Isaiah, as white as snow. As white as snow, covered and by the blood of Christ and cleansed and made pure. And so even my half-hearted faithfulness, faithless, following hard after Christ, missing a beat, stumbling, failing, is colored by the fact and the reality that a weak hand can receive a rich jewel. That's it, friends. By faith, our weak hands receive a rich jewel. And the jewel is Christ. He is the bride. We are the bride. We are the bride. He is the bridegroom. You know, Laban did get uh, 
get a few things right. Here's one of them. When Laban looked at Jacob and said, God has blessed me because of you. He was simply telling the story. (laughs) And it was true. Lacob benefited. Lacob was richly blessed because of Jacob and his association with him. Which means that you and I can take Laban's words and we can say them. Not to Jacob. To a greater Jacob. To the one Jacob's life points to. Lord Jesus Christ, God has blessed us because of you. Lord, you have blessed me because of Christ. It is his life. It is his riches which are extended to you weak-handed people to take hold of the richest jewel that has ever been or ever will be. Christ our Lord.